Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. Paul Bilheimer writes, The continuous and widespread fragmentation of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been Satan's master strategy. The sin of disunity probably has caused more souls to be lost than all other sins combined. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. In his letters to the early church, the Apostle Paul frequently implored Christians to be united as one church body. But sadly, church history is filled with heated arguments, ugly divisions, and even lawsuits. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress examines the first disagreement in the history of the church. Now here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. Some churches have become prone to obliging petty complaints. In doing so, they spend undue energy on pacifying the occasional whiner while the world is crumbling around them. So here's the question. How do we develop fearless churches that keep their eyes on the goal? In my brand new series called Unstoppable Power, we're finding answers to that relevant question. And in my book by the same title, Unstoppable Power, I show you how to take natural steps toward developing supernatural strength and boldness. Families all across our great country and even the world are feeling marginalized and even mocked by a culture that hates our message. My book will help you and your family remain deeply rooted in your Christian faith. Ask for a copy of Unstoppable Power today when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. And bear in mind that right now we're midway through the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. Today's the perfect day to step forward so that your gift is doubled in size. We still have a ways to go before we reach our goal of $500,000. And every dollar God prompts you to give between now and July 4th will be applied to this critically important objective, and that is empowering believers like you to develop unstoppable power. David and I will share more details later in the program. I'd like you to be ready to jot down our contact information so that you can double your gifts through the matching challenge and so that I can send you a copy of my book, Unstoppable Power. But right now, let's move ahead to my message titled, How to Avoid a Church Fight. Remember in Acts chapter 5, the church was facing two threats. When the church was prospering and being effective for Christ, uh, Satan was trying to attack the church in two different ways, internally and externally. There was that internal problem of sin, and God dealt with it by <laughs> removing Ananias and Sapphira. But then the church faced outside threats, persecution. We had the apostles being beaten and threatened in the name of Jesus to quit proclaiming the name of Jesus. And neither tactic worked in silencing the church. You know, I have found that Satan is not very original. There's nothing creative about Satan at all. He doesn't have to be. The same old tricks work year after year, millennia after millennia. And that's true when it comes to Acts 6. We find him using the same tactics to try to silence the church. Internal problems and then external threats. 
And today, when we come to Acts chapter 6, we're going to look at the internal problem. In fact, it's the first controversy in the history of the church. Let's look, first of all, at Acts chapter 6-1, where the internal problem that threatened the church is explained. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, that was the problem, the overlooking of the widows. In verses 2 and 3, you find the solution to that problem. The 12, that is the apostles, summoned the congregation, that is the church, and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. In other words, we can't do what we're supposed to do if we get ourselves involved in serving the widows. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This is the first instance of an organization of the church. It started out with apostles, but now we're adding a second group in the church, the outlines of the office of deacon. And the statement about having deacons found approval with the whole congregation. The congregation had the final say. The New Testament church, ladies and gentlemen, is a congregational church. It's always been that way. Always has been that way from the beginning. Now, there are people who try to change that. They think they have a better way of handling things. No, we are a congregational church because that's what God designed. Adrian Rogers said it best when he said the New Testament church is pastor-led, deacon-served, and congregationally approved. And that's what we see here in this early church in Acts chapter 6. And so the whole congregation approved the idea of having deacons and they appointed the deacons. We do that here in our church. When we need more deacons, we open it up for you to nominate the deacon body. When we are looking for a pastor, we open it up to you to suggest people you would like the search committee to look at. And so we find these seven who were chosen in verse 5. They were Stephen. He'll be instrumental as the first martyr we'll see next time. Philip, who became the first evangelist, the only one who was ever called an evangelist in all the Bible. And then Procurus, Nicanor, Nicanor Timon, and Parmenas are all mentioned, as well as Nicholas. Verse 6 says, And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. This is the first ordination in the Bible. What is the purpose of an ordination? When we ordain somebody, we're not calling them to their office of service. No church has the power to call somebody to be a deacon, to call somebody to be a pastor. Only God calls us to service. Ordination is a human recognition of a heavenly reality. When we ordain people, lay hands on them, we are recognizing that God has already set these people apart for a place of service. Now, what was the result of solving this problem God's way? Look how the church is blessed beginning in verse 7. And the Word of God 
kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. What started out as a problem that could have split the church ended up uniting the church and making it more effective so that people, even unbelieving Jewish priests, were coming to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, you may be asking, what in the world does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with us? I want to suggest to you in closing today three timeless essentials for keeping peace in any church. That's why I titled the message, How to Avoid a Church Fight. Number one, write this down. Responsibility in the church should be divided. It should be divided. We have a saying here in our church, no one can do everything in the church, but everyone ought to be doing something in the church. No one person ought to be in charge of everything. We ought to divide responsibility. Remember the story in Exodus 18 about Moses? He was getting worn out from trying to lead those Israelites, three million of them around in the desert. And his father-in-law Jethro saw that he was about to crater and Jethro gave this suggestion. He said, Moses, why don't you divide the people up into manageable groups instead of trying to take care of them yourself? They'll be happier and you'll live longer if you do that. And that's exactly what Moses did. He broke down that massive body of Israelites into smaller units. We do that today in our church. We were at our dinner with the pastor the other night. And they said, Pastor, how is it if such a big church has such a small church feel to it? People know one another and care about one another. It's because we've broken down into smaller groups we call Sunday schools. And those Sunday school classes have outreach directors and ministers and people who can minister to the needs of people. God never meant for uh, one person to do everything. Uh, and the fact is, we could never hire enough paid professionals, church staff, to take care of the needs of the church. And if we could do it, we would be robbing you of one of the greatest joys in the Christian life, and that's being involved in ministry. God's purpose for paid professionals, vocational Christians, is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says, Paul said, and he gave some to the church as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers to do the work of the ministry? No. He called these special offices, verse 12, to equip the saints. That would be you. To give you the supplies you need for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You know, when we get a new staff member here, I can um, tell pretty quickly whether he or she is going to fail or succeed. And the number one thing I look at is, are they able to recruit a team of volunteers to work with them? If they're running around doing everything themselves, turning on the lights, turning off the lights, making the coffee on Sunday morning, teaching the lesson, calling all the prospects, I know they're not going to make it here. The church is too big for that. What you need is a team of volunteers, people who will work with you. And the larger the volunteer team, the larger the ministry becomes. 
God never meant for those of us who are paid professionals to rob you of the joy of ministry. Our job is to equip you to use the gifts God has given you for the building up of the body of Christ. And that leads to the second truth in this passage. Every Christian should utilize his gift in the local church. You know, when you were saved, you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit came into your life, he brought a unique spiritual gift to serve in building up the body of Christ. We read the passage from 1 Peter 4.10 a few moments ago. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What is a spiritual gift? We've talked about this before. It's a unique desire and power God has given you to accomplish his purpose. It's a desire. Uh, It's something you feel passionate about. You know, I think it's interesting in our story today about those Hellenistic Jews. Who do you think it was that was complaining that the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in their service of food? Who do you think complained? You think the native Hebrews were complaining about that? No, it was the Hellenistic Jews. They said, we don't like this. This is wrong. Isn't it interesting that out of the seven deacons God called, six of them were Hellenistic Jews? There's a principle there. God is saying, if you feel passionate about something, maybe that's my way of telling you this is the ministry you're to be involved in. If you think the standard of Bible teaching needs to be improved in the church, maybe you need to be a teacher. If you're concerned about children coming to know Christ at an early age, maybe you need to be in the children's ministry. Hey, you know, if you think praising God through music is a high priority in the church, maybe you ought to be involved in the music ministry. A spiritual gift is a unique desire God places in your heart, but it's also an ability. It's a gift. It's a supernatural enablement. It's something you do that God uses in a significant way. It is both a desire and a giftedness. And when you find that place of service, when you start using your gift, you have true joy. You know, I was getting dressed this morning, and I heard somebody make a statement on television that I wrote down. He said, spiritual gifts are not for our enjoyment, but they are for our employment. I wrote that down, and then I looked at it, and I said, that's not right. That's not right. That's a false dichotomy. It's for our employment, but not our enjoyment. It's for both. You know, that word grace in 1 Peter 4.10, it comes from a Greek root word that means joy. If you want to know real joy in your life, find that spiritual gift God is is using in your life and wants to use to build up the body of Christ. Now, the third principle, and this is so important, we find from Acts 6, a unified church is a powerful witness to unbelievers. It's a powerful witness to unbelievers. We see that in verse 7. When the church was united, everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing, people were flooding into the church, even the unbelieving Jews. But the opposite is also true. A dysfunctional church repels people from Jesus Christ. You know, the most common image in the Bible for the church is the body of Christ. 
The church is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. The world can't see Jesus. He's in heaven. But they can see his body, that is, other believers on earth. And what an unbeliever ends up thinking about Jesus Christ is largely determined by what he sees in the church. Unfortunately, in too many places, people aren't seeing something good in the church. They're seeing something ugly. Paul Bilheimer writes, the continuous and widespread fragmentation of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been Satan's master strategy. The sin of disunity probably has caused more souls to be lost than all other sins combined. The fights, the schisms, even lawsuits in churches, members against one another, those things don't attract people to the gospel. They repel people from the gospel. Thankfully, our church for the last 15 years has enjoyed a great period of unity and focus and agreement in purpose. But it hasn't always been that way. Friday night, I was reading through a transcript of a church staff meeting that Dr. Criswell convened in the fall of 1975. And it was over a problem in the church a problem that threatened to destroy our church. And those of you who may have been here during that period of time, you know what the issue was. Maybe you don't remember what it was. But that period of time was the closest our church ever came to splitting. 1975, 1976. And I read the details again of all of that. And I was reminded of something that right when that schism was starting to grow in our church, that year, 1975, 1976, that church year was the apex, the zenith of our church attendance. And then that year, the attendance began to deteriorate. And you can look on a graph. The high point was 1975, and for the next 30 years, the church went down, down, down. Was that an accident? No. Schisms, disunity repels people from the church. The church went down and down and down. A new pastor would come and the church would go up a little bit, but then right back down. Another pastor up a little bit and then down, up and down. We finally bottomed out in 2006, 30 years after this schism appeared. But then if you look at the graph in 2006, you'll notice something happens. The church begins to turn around. It begins to increase in members. The giving starts to increase. The Criswell Center is dedicated and opened. The new campus is dreamed about and proposed and finally built. The outreach of the church expands. The budget increases. And now the church has the largest ministry around the world it has ever had. What caused that turnaround in 2006? It didn't have anything to do with me. I wasn't here yet. I was in the process of coming, but I wasn't here yet during that time. What happened? I'll tell you exactly what happened. 
a group of people in this church started praying for our church. They started praying for a great turnaround. Our deacons and our members decided to unite together, to lay aside their differences, and to come together to do whatever was necessary to make this church realize its God-given potential. And because of that decision, and the decision the people made that they were going to support the next pastor regardless of who he is, it was that decision that led our church to the next 15 years of unprecedented growth and blessing from God. That's how God works. He honors any church that will choose to lay aside its differences and come together to work for God's good. Does that mean everybody in our church agrees with everything right now? Of course not. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. But our church is solid in its commitment to one another and its commitment to God's purpose. You say, Pastor, why are you preaching this right now? Besides the fact that that's where we are in Acts 6. Is there some problem in our church that you're trying to subtly address? Not at all. We've never been more united, more at peace, more focused, more blessed of God than we are right now. And that's why I'm saying this right now. We need to make sure we retain that unity in our church. We need to do what Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, be diligent to preserve the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. And if we do that, God will continue to bless us. And we'll see unbelievers attracted to the gospel. That's what happened in the early church. Tertullian was a church father who lived in the second century. But he wrote about what happened in this early church. And he asked the question, what is it that attracted unbelievers to that early church? Was it their wealth? No. Prominence? No, they didn't have any. He recorded what the unbelievers of the first century were saying. Quote, and the unbeliever said, oh, how those Christians love one another. That's what drew people. To that early church and it continues today isn't that what jesus said in john 13 35 by this all men shall know you are my disciples if you love one another that's what made the first church an unstoppable force of god nothing will diffuse a church fight any quicker than a strong dose of unfettered love that's another lesson we glean from our first century brothers and sisters in Christ who demonstrated God's unstoppable power. Well, as we conclude another week of Bible studies together, I'm urging you to get in touch with Pathway to Victory right away so that I can send you my brand new book on this topic. It's called, as you would guess, Unstoppable Power, and it's based on Acts chapters 1 through 12. And I'm pleased to send you a copy when you give a generous gift toward the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge that's active right now. Because of this matching challenge, your gift of any amount is automatically doubled in size and impact. But here's the best part. God will use your gift today to reach people from all walks of life. For example, one of our listeners in Oklahoma City sent us this note. He said, Dr. Jeffress, my full-time job is a police officer but my passion is teaching the Bible. 
I'm actively engaged in my church teaching Sunday school classes and small groups. I lean on your Bible teaching to help me because you always relate God's truth to everyday life. Thanks so much, and please keep up the good work. What an encouraging note. And now, friends, it's your turn. This loyal listener is doing his part in transforming the American culture. May I count on you to help me reach more people like him? Give generously to our matching challenge this month. God will use your gift to multiply his message all across our country and around our world. As we come into the weekend, don't forget you can watch Pathway to Victory on television. You can see us Saturdays at noon Eastern on TBN. And on Sunday, we're on hundreds of stations, including TBN at 10 a.m. Eastern or Daystar at 6 p.m. Eastern. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffers. Today, when you invest in the ministry of Pathway to Victory by giving a generous gift, we'll say thanks by sending you the brand new book by Dr. Jeffers called Unstoppable Power. Call 866-999-2965 or visit our website at ptv.org. And when your investment in this ministry is $100 or more, we'll also send you the complete collection of audio and video discs for the Unstoppable Power teaching series. Plus, we'll also send you a study guide to use on your own or with a small group. And don't forget, every dollar you give right now will be doubled by our Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. That's until we reach the goal of $500,000. One more time, call 866-999-2965 or go online to ptv.org. You could also write to us if you'd like. Here's that mailing address. P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, wishing you a great weekend. Then join us again next week when Dr. Jeffress continues his study in the book of Acts called Unstoppable Power, right here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.